Hello, thank you for listening to this event on the role of housing and levelling up in reaching net zero uh, that we put on at Conservative Party conference. Unfortunately, Bob Blackman MP wasn't able to join us on the day because he was unwell. Uh, but thankfully, he's been able to catch up with us since then. And we recorded a, a short interview with him uh, covering the topics that we discussed at the event. So you're going to hear that first and then it will go on into the event itself. What do you see as the role of housing in both uh, reaching net zero and levelling up? OK, well, clearly at the moment we've got a housing shortage in this country. Uh, different people estimate different levels of housing shortage. But clearly, in terms of just levelling up people's capability, having somewhere decent to live is an all important factor. So uh, I'm, I'm a great proponent of uh, providing socially rented accommodation for people that need it with rents that are affordable uh, and indeed making sure that um, the, the tenure is right uh, and that the, it meets the housing need of the, of the individuals. Far too often um, in this country, even where we provide social housing, it ends up as being uh, not suitable for the needs of, say, families, mm. uh, which uh, is a real problem right now, uh, I think, right across the country. Uh, and in terms of levelling up, you know, if you don't have somewhere decent to live, then how do you get how do you get a proper job? How do you support yourself? How do you build a community? So once again, it's about building a community, not just providing housing. So making sure that when we build housing, we've got together with it the educational facilities, the health facilities, the other public services on which we all depend uh, and, and making sure that that's included within the scope of, of any development. So if you're building a, a brand new development, which is um, uh, uh, you know, multiple uh, housing units, then making sure that that is either has access to the sort of facilities I'm talking about mm. or incorporates uh, within the proposed development that what is required and you know we know that 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 becomes a challenge developers don't like doing it um, for obvious reasons and they don't like contributing towards it uh, but nevertheless as a consequence of of their development i also think that you know we've got to have house prices um, that are affordable for people at the moment we've we've had house price inflation which has been quite dramatic that's generally because of the shortage and we, we do have a problem in the sense that um, a lot of developers will get planning permission for development and then they'll ration the supply of housing. Mm. So they keep the prices up for new new build uh, and then that increases the prices generally um, right across an area. And it becomes almost impossible for people to buy a new house or a new flat or whatever because they just can't afford the mortgage that would flow from it. Equally, um, obviously, uh, if it's a rental property, the private rented sector uh, is, is fluctuating. But at the moment, there's a large number of landlords leaving the private rented sector, which means the people that depend on the private rented sector are paying higher and higher rents. And in fact, in, in parts of London, you know, we're hearing stories about people literally bidding when a property comes mm. available. People bid for to rent it and they bid the rent that they'll pay. They'll, prepared to pay um, so it's a you know it's, that's a real problem for us in terms of ensuring that people have got um, a, a decent place to live 
And if they're driven out of, of an area because of the affordability of, of housing, that means they've got to commute to their jobs or maybe they have to change jobs or, or even lose their jobs uh, as a result. So having housing at affordable prices in places where people need it is vitally important to ensuring that we try and level up society. Um, and it's not about, you know, for me, levelling up is not about dumbing down. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's, it's actually getting people up to higher levels and balancing things in a, in a far better way. Um, and so we, we, you know, we need to be concentrating on doing that. Now, I'm, I'm not, yeah. Well, the, the, the ambition in the Conservative Party manifesto was 300,000 new homes a year. Uh, we haven't achieved that, but, 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 um, uh, COVID in, interrupted that progress. Uh, I think we got to something like 224,000 units a year, which is the biggest uh, new home build for you know, 30 years. So from that perspective, it, it, there was a there was a, an improvement in the position. Obviously, COVID struck. We do have a number of problems in this area. One is the the um, the small number of housing developers who are producing new housing, who are their private companies maximising their profits uh, by rationing supply. We need mm. to get on them and say, you you we need to improve that. And one of the areas is is when they're given planning permission, possibly to shorten the time frame in which they must start a development uh, and, and start completing units. Because otherwise they've, you know, they've got four years before they'll start doing doing the housing development and they can sit on, on the development site because they know that the value of those units is likely to increase um, the longer they leave it. And then of course, uh, you may have something that was granted planning permission they start work and it's another, I don't know, three or four years before it's finished. So literally eight years of, of worth of development taking place. So vitally important that we speed up the process um, and equally consider how we speed up that process um, uh, going, going forward. Uh, because when we're talking about net zero, what we want to make sure of is that homes are of are energy efficient and provided with the facilities that they need. So obviously people want warm homes, um, they and they don't want to expend huge amounts of money on heating those homes. So making sure that new homes are adequately insulated, they use modern methods of construction, they also use appropriate uh, means of heating um, for the home and also hot water and, and for other other purposes within the home cooking and such like so from from that perspective there's a big role here and i'm i'm concerned that for example uh we 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 brought forward a, a moratorium on on the implement, implementation of new gas boilers mm. and then we seem to have gone back on that um, as as we know for example most people will have a gas boiler uh, installed if it's a new gas boiler Certainly, you might, you'd hope that it lasted at least 10 years, um, possibly 15 or 20, depending on how well you maintain it. But that means that the, because people now are going to be getting gas boilers for a lot longer as new, we're, we're talking, you know, into the 2050s before we get may make a real impact on, on, on the use of gas, for example, uh, as a fuel in the home. That's a problem, I think. Equally, uh, making sure that energy efficiency standards are maintained and, and improved. Uh, real problem, because if you build something 
which is energy efficient, then that's that's the problem solved. If you build a home and then have to re retrofit it with energy efficiency measures, that's a real nightmare and probably a dramatically increased cost as well yeah. uh, for people. So why not build them in, in an energy efficient fashion in the first place? Absolutely. So I think I think we've built about a million homes, haven't we, since we scrapped the zero carbon homes standard, all of which exactly. have to be to be yeah. retrofitted. And oh, I mean, they may not be capable of being retrofitted. That's the other yeah. problem. Yeah, because uh, it and, wasn't part of the design. And uh, and that's a really good point you make about the current standards that are coming down the tracks. So you have the future home standard, which yeah. has stuff in there on energy efficiency and and heating. Um, but from what I understand, there are kind of rumours. You know, house builders are, are wanting to sort of apply some pressure to see if they can get those sort of loosened up again. Um, so it'll be an interesting area. Yeah, because basically it's extra costs for the house builder, yeah. um, and they will they will be saying, oh well, you know, if we can get rid of that, we can reduce the price. Well, they don't reduce the price, they just, um, but they just reduce the the imposition in terms of what they have to do in terms of their design. So I think that's that's pretty key. And what about the role of modular housing? So obviously Make UK Modular, which is this mm. sort of new trade body for this industry, they've published this really interesting report called um, Greener, Faster, Better, sort of pointing out that actually using these kind of new modern techniques you can address quite a lot of the issues in the in housing in terms of reducing cost building more quickly and building in a really green way it's obviously a sort of nascent industry it's quite small at the moment but it's set to grow what's your sort of view of the, the well i think the, the the slight problem is um, the modular homes have got a got a bad press originally because but uh, you know literally uh, these these big crates uh, were being used as uh, and, and people have a, this image in their mind that people will be allocated literally a, a, a converted crate to live in. Um, now, actually, funny enough that the, the the design of that is very sensible because you know they are literally spaces that can be put on the back of a lorry and transported to a site and um, not using converted crates, but but purpose built units like that. Have their place, particularly for a temporary housing development, or you know, for for people that are going to be need to be accommodated quickly, uh, because they can be brought to site, stacked on site, uh, and then um, they are purpose built, and 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 equally, it's very easy for a local authority or housing association or such like to keep them clean um, between tenancies and you know, cleaning literally cleaning them up, <coughs> and also retaining them as as being. Um, units that are uh, relatively easy to make energy efficient. Um, so, you know, that has a role. But that's that's really given, I think, the industry a bad name in, in many ways. And people have this vision of because uh, they've seen these things in, in operation. But modular housing, it, much more importantly, is where, you know, you're literally building in a factory um, a, a home and then building it in modules and then transporting it to site and setting it up. Now, that speeds up the whole process because you can have in the factory, um, you know, shift using shifts, operating, building these homes 24 hours a day. Uh, I've been to, you know, one or two of these factories over in uh, east of London where um, that, that's taking taking place. Uh, once again, that's got a bad name because people say, well, it can't be a proper home because it's not built with bricks and mortar. Well, it can actually be very energy efficient, as you say. Um, it's it's also can be built to order and because you can build these things in modules you can have um, a, a 
set a series of modules on site to configure a home for either two people, three people, four people, however many people you want to put together. And from the, the outside, and when you go inside, you wouldn't notice any difference to um, the home being, whether it's bricks and mortar or, mm. or modular. Um, and the materials being used obviously make it very energy efficient, uh, which is good news for the people that, that um, choose to buy or rent these properties. This much speedier to, as I say, to bring into operation. Um, and, um, you know, I first saw these these type of homes in Holland, mm. where um, obviously Holland's got a, an issue over reclaiming land through polders and such like. So it's very, very sandy soil very soft, very porous. So doesn't lend itself to traditional house building. But what you can do is obviously with uh, appropriate footings, just literally build a house, transport it to the site, plonk it down, and you can choose the design of your home, literally. You know, you can order a home as in the same way as you would order uh, from a menu of, of, of food and such like. Uh, what a wonderful way of providing a home much more quickly uh, on a site that would would uh, would suit that particular type of housing. You've got the issue of, of um, if we went to Battersea Power Station, uh, where huge development is is obviously taking place still, and many of them have been built. Uh, there, uh, virtually all the bathrooms uh, were modular bathrooms, bizarrely built in Italy because Italy tends to be pretty good at doing bathrooms i don't know why uh, but they build the units in in italy then transport them on the back of a lorry to site uh, obviously using cranes and so on and situate the the bathroom in as a pod within the flat and yeah. then obviously just got to connect up the pipes and such like uh, and that's seen as being far more efficient and effective than building on site uh, and so yeah we've got to be thinking laterally about how this can be done um, modular homes for me are a great way of providing housing more quickly uh, on a site, probably more cheaply um, than than traditional methods of construction, uh, and as you say, energy efficient. So saving money for the residents in in that that home who can um, then look forward to lower fuel fuel bills, um, and at equally making sure they've got a decent place to live in. There's always but a challenge on 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 this on insurance. You know, is it is it safe? Is it you know the fire safety issues and so on? But actually, you know, using um, appropriate materials that can be um, cl clearly very easily overcome. Um, but there's a bit of a prejudice there. That's great, Bob. I mean, really, really interesting what you say and the comparisons with with the Netherlands and, and Italy. Um, I suppose final question, just briefly. I mean, what what do you think is important in terms of overcoming that prejudice? Do you think? Um, Modular homes are starting to get more more of a fan base in Parliament, for example, and and some of the kind of policies that might support it. To, it's not going to replace traditional house building, but just no. I think it's it's, it's a, another play, another play a bigger role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my colleague uh, Richard Bacon did a a major report um, for the Prime Minister, but two, I think, <laughs> uh, and he he put together a, a, a very comprehensive guide to how we can do various different types of housing. You know, from the position of self-build, you know, where where people may want to li literally commission their own home, do all the design work and so on, or get people to do that for them, and then literally get what they wanted, um, right the way through to to 
um, promoting modular housing because this is a way that individuals can get, get literally they can order a home uh, and get it configured the way they want it as well as being um, energy efficient uh, and so on i think in parliament um, there are you know it's a slow process and as i say because at the beginning of this um, type of uh, of operation it was seen as uh, uh, as people being forced to live in sea containers or whatever um, that's no longer the case you know what we're talking about is uh, is, is containers that are um, purpose-built, um, designed to do the right right sort of things. There are, you know, you can you can you can design these and put these in place very quickly and speed up the whole process. Because the one one objection that is frequently there is, you know, how do we get housing quickly for people that need it? Well, here is a an ideal opportunity, and um, I think MPs are coming around to it. I think one of our problems and challenges is that we keep changing the housing ministers um, and and therefore because we keep changing them policy direction uh, is is inconsistent and it may be you know an initiative from one minister and then that minister gets moved and then it's get quietly dropped uh, what we do need is some consistency over this for uh, uh, some little while and actually getting direction um, to both not only consider this but actually to encourage the use of modular housing, particularly in, in key sites where um, access may be, um, may be a challenge, where, but people don't want um, workmen working all hours of the day and night, so they're restricted in terms of when they can actually do development work. Here you can do it off-site, transfer to sites, and then you've just got the case of, of putting this modular units together in the form of housing. What's not to like about that? Yeah, brilliant. That's a, that's a great note to finish on. Um, Bob, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, yeah, we'll definitely uh, follow what you're up to on the committee on this. OK, well, we'll be looking at, indeed at uh, this again, um, no doubt in the, in the future. We, we, we did a, a major report on this um, uh, some while ago and we will, we'll obviously be revisiting that work because the pressure on on the requirement for housing and to be housing to be re be developed more quickly also making sure that housing is energy efficient is increasing year by year and we're committed you know as a country to to achieving net zero and we've got we've got to set the example i think i'm gonna get started um thank you all very much for coming uh by the smell of it we've got some of the best pie in birmingham uh so please do tuck in uh get a good meal while you can um, so hello and welcome to this event on housing levelling up and net zero. Uh, thank you for coming and thanks to Make UK Modular uh, for partnering with us on this event. Um, so housing is clearly one of the most central challenges that we face as a country. Uh, it's critical to unlocking growth, critical to levelling up our regions and of course critical to reaching net zero and reducing our dependence on imported uh, gas. Uh, currently, I think most uh, experts agree, uh, we're building too few homes, particularly affordable homes. We're not necessarily building homes in the right places and often not to the right standards. Uh, and that includes on energy efficiency and carbon emissions. Uh, and we're also failing to upgrade our existing stock uh, quickly enough. Uh, and that stock is among the draftiest in Europe, which we're discovering in this energy crisis. 
Uh, so I think most people agree that this will only change with major reform, changes in policy and regulation. Uh, and I think we've had successive governments that have set out some bold ambitions on housing, um, but their attempts haven't always sort of met those ambitions. Uh, we've got increasing focus, I would say, on this agenda with an election roving into view uh, and quite an active debate. Uh, last week, we saw several new ideas coming out from the Labour Party, uh, and we've heard Liz Truss uh, talk about reducing complexity in the planning system and putting more power in, in local hands. Uh, there's also a range of ideas for ways in which we could build uh, more innovatively, uh, including modular homes, which we're going to be talking about uh, today. So what does the government need to do uh, to address problems in the housing system and ensure uh, efficient and affordable homes uh, are built across the UK in a way that contributes to levelling up and net zero? That's uh, quite a big question, but that's the one that we've set ourselves today. Um, got a great panel to discuss all of that. Uh, Steve Cole is director of uh, Make UK Modular, uh, a new trade body for the modular housing industry. He previously worked uh, at, for Clarion as director of housing and at Business London. Uh, Kate Henderson is chief executive of the National Housing Federation, the voice of housing associations uh, in England and former CEO of the Town and Country Planning Association. Rosie Tugard is chief executive of LNG Modular Homes and previously worked at Rolls-Royce. Uh, and Linda Taylor, who should be joining us uh, shortly, uh, is the leader of Cornwall Council and a member of the local government associations Environment, Economy, Housing and Transport Group. Uh, so a bit of housekeeping, this event is live and on the record. Uh, we will be tweeting uh, from our account IFG events uh, and using the hashtag IFGCon22 if you feel like tweeting any uh, interesting things you observe. Uh, I'm going to start by asking my panel uh, a few questions and then there's going to be plenty of time for questions from you at the end. So Kate, I'll start with you. What role will housing need to play in net zero and levelling up? So I think when we when we talk about net zero and when we talk about levelling up, I think they're, they're one and the same thing. But if you ask somebody on the street what either of those terms meant, I think that there'd be quite a lot of, of confusion and they'd come up with different answers. But for me, this is about ensuring our communities, our homes, our places are prosperous, are vibrant, but that they're resilient and adaptable to future changes. And that's going to be changes in our local economies, changes in society, but changes also in the environment and being able to, to um, accommodate different weather patterns. And we've certainly seen that over the summer with the drought that we've experienced um, across, across the country. In terms of the housing association role, so for those of you who don't know the National Housing Federation, we represent housing associations in England that are not-for-profit social landlords providing um, homes to around 6 million people. So we own and manage 2.7 million houses, and they are pretty much in every part of the country. Um, we are a big contributor to supply. So every year we're responsible for building. Uh, in last year, we built around 40,000 new homes. And I think the modular um, route to supply, modern methods of construction, is going to be really important as we, you know, continue to, to meet housing need. I think also in terms of modular, it has a particularly um, 
innovative way of being able to ensure homes are sustainable, but also to be able to monitor those homes into the longer term. I think one of the things we have with our older housing stock is actually having the details, the data of really understanding the materials, how they work, whereas with modular, there's some, some really exciting new opportunities there. Um, again, for, for those of you who are not that familiar with housing associations, we do a lot more than just uh, build homes and provide landlord services. So we do education, training and skills. We support people during hardship. We do a lot of community investment. And I think all of those activities really contribute to the levelling up agenda. Some of our organisations are 150 years old, some are 50 years old, some might just be 20 years old. But what we are is a anchor organisation, much like a, a big hospital as an employer or a university. The communities in which we work, we are there for the long haul. We stay. And I think that is why we have such a strategic long-term interest in being a partner in levelling up. Now, in terms of the net zero agenda, our biggest challenge is not new supply. I think we have the, the, the technological capability in this country to build net zero homes now, to build to passive house standards now. Our big challenge is how do we retrofit those 2.7 million homes to net zero over the next 30 years? And I think we are really well placed to do this. Now, the Conservative Manifesto from 2019 also recognised this, committed a £3.8 million social housing decarbonisation fund. Just last week, we saw the latest wave of that funding, and I think that that's really, really important. The government recognised that the social housing sector is a really important place to start with decarbonisation because the investment there has multiple benefits. It has the benefits of working with a sector that has the economies of scale across the country. It's working with a sector that has pretty much every housing type um, and also operates in every part of the country. So when we think about you know, those green jobs, those high-skilled and lesser-skilled roles, we can create them in every part of the country. We also, in social housing, house people on the lowest incomes in this country. So there is a huge advantage of making sure that their homes are enabling them to have lower fuel bills, but enabling them to live well, you know, making sure that residents of social housing are not in fuel poverty. And I think that that's particularly acute right now as we face an energy crisis and a cost of living crisis. So there's sort of mo multiple um, benefits there. In terms of working with government on the social housing decarbonisation fund, there are many things we can do. So one of which is going to be trying to help support those skills and supply chains. We cannot do that alone. We have to work in partnership, but that's an important part of working with government. I think crucially, it's going to be around consumer confidence. And actually, when I've been out and about and I've met people in the pilot project of the first funding from this social housing decarbonisation fund, they don't just say, you know, my bills are cheaper. They say, oh, my house feels so much better. My street feels so much better. Look at the investment that's been made in the place where I live. I feel really good about this. And actually, that, I mean, for me, that's been the most powerful thing. And in some of those pilot projects where you might be doing a street of semi-detached houses or you might be doing a cul-de-sac of bungalows, it's when the housing associations first gone out with the local authority and said, do you want your home retrofitted? Not everybody has said yes. And actually, what you really want is everyone to say yes, so you can get the economies of scale and you can do it all. But what's worked so well in doing those projects is as the, the work started and people starting to see the investment, those households who, for probably very good reasons, you know, a partner's died, they can't bear to go into the loft to clear it out for the loft insulation, 
or they don't understand the technology and they're fearful that their bills might actually go up, not down because of the interventions. When you start having those conversations and they're able to talk to their neighbours about what's happening, you've started to see them come on board as well. So I think that there's lots of opportunity there in terms of actually us creating the market confidence, not just in the social housing sector, but beyond that. And I really think that decarbonising social homes from those places I've been out to see is what levelling up is all about. You know, we hear uh, politicians talking about pride of place. Actually, you go to a street that's been retrofitted. It feels great. It feels loved. It feels invested in. And in terms of actually winning the next election, people feeling like they, you know, something good is happening in their community, plus they're being protected from the, the, you know, the huge energy prices. I think net zero is really the key to levelling up. Brilliant. Thank you, Kay. Um, I think... Both of us were at a panel that Michael Gove did a, a speech at this morning, um, and I was quite struck there by him sort of reframing, sort of arguing that conservatives shouldn't just see themselves as a party of home ownership, but actually needing to fix problems in all these different sectors, you know, in social housing, in the private rented sector, to have a successful economy, and sort of framing that in terms of labour mobility, sort of social mobility, having a, a successful labour market. I mean, do you see particularly from your view in the sort of social housing sector, if you look at the levelling up legislation that's coming, you look at the sort of noises from, from the current government, do you think there's enough of a commitment to the role of social housing in the levelling up in the sort of terms that you're expressing it? So I think that there is a really strong commitment from the government in decarbonisation with the social mm. housing sector. I think when it comes to levelling up, it does still mean different things to different people. And actually, the legislation for levelling up and regeneration is sort of an 80% planning reform bill. There's a bit of levelling up at, at either end. And actually, that, that piece of legislation doesn't really embrace the net zero, the retrofit agenda in a way that it, it could. So there's a positive opportunity for inserting, amending that to have um, net zero ambitions in there. In terms of the legislation itself, because it's a planning reform bill, it does have uh, some challenges, and these are challenges that I think the Conservative Party nationally and locally have grappled with a long, for, for a long time. Crucially for us in the social housing sector, the levelling up bill proposes an infrastructure levy. So at the moment, I mentioned that we deliver around 40,000 homes a year. Half of the supply of affordable housing in, in this country comes from planning obligations, Section 106s. And in that legislation, they're proposing to replace Section 106s with an infrastructure levy. To, to, to introduce simplicity. Now, that sounds great, but we need to ensure it works in practice. And we worked very closely with Michael Gove on this. So the legislation as drafted at the moment says it will deliver current levels of affordable housing. What we're delivering now is not enough. So we don't want to bake in under supply. We need that to be based on, on objectively assessed need. I think, secondly, we need to ensure the legislation delivers mixed communities. It's not in there at the moment. We don't want monotenure estates. That doesn't make, you know, it doesn't work for anyone. We have got to learn from the past. We don't want a bolt-on estate of social housing on the edge of town. We want beautiful communities where you can't tell. I mean, this is actually what Michael Gove was talking about. We need beautiful communities where you can't tell if it is a social home, a rented, a private rented home, and owner-occupied. Just needs to be nice, well designed, and affordable in each of those ten years. Um, I think the legislation doesn't do that right now. Um, we don't know how it's going to work in areas of lowland value. So, again, in terms of levelling up, it's got to work where the viability, you know, is stretched because it's the expensive land value, but it's also got to work where there's regeneration needs. And I think last but not least, we would like to see it, um, an exemption for, for affordable sites to not have to pay the levy. So we have legislation at the moment that is mostly planning reform. 
um, whether it delivers this desired outcome of prosperity of place, of sustainable, resilient, inclusive places, um, I think there's probably some work, work to do on that. Just before I bring Steve in, so I was interested in what you said about the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund. Um, I think anyone here who's had the sort of misfortune of engaging with the Green Homes Grant might look at what's happened in the, in the social housing space and sort of think, how did that go so right? You know, I mean, I mean, there's clearly issues that need to be worked out with it. But take us a bit into that. I mean, in terms of how that policy was developed, why is it that you think, you know, that programme has had some successes compared to what's been happening elsewhere? So I, I, I'm not pretending doing retrofit in social housing is easy. We are struggling to get the right skills, the right contractors. We are not getting a consistent response in terms of planning consents for doing it. Um, but there is the ability to, to work in a way with residents in our sector that is quite different to other tenures. So I think if you are a, a social landlord, your relationship with your tenant is not just a transactional one. It's one over a much longer time period. So there's a degree of trust there. There's trust that you're making investment, and it's their home. In their home, you're making an investment in their home, which is going to help them over the longer term. Now, that takes a huge amount of engagement before there is the, yes, I'm happy to have the work done. So, again, I'm not pretending it's easy. But that relationship is over the long term. It's quite different to saying to a, to, to, to a homeowner right now, can you go out and replace your boiler? You take that financial hit and you do it when actually their boiler might be relatively new and working perfectly fine and they don't really know who to go to to get the next you know, bit of kit if it's a heat pump or whatever it might be. So again, there's a trust in the sector, but there's also the ability to go into the economies of scale. And again, I think that with private landlords, it's, it will be a different incentive regime. Um, the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund has worked because we've had really good engagement. I mean, we, we work with the team in Bayes on this um, consistently. And actually, we've had a pilot phase where we did whole house retrofit. During that, it's very expensive. It's very disruptive. It has brilliant results so far. We're monitoring it. But actually, even during that, the cost inflation over the last year has gone up hugely. The timescales are longer than we'd have liked them to be. So with each pilot and then wave one, we've been able to, to feed that back to Bayes so that the next wave that's come out is much more you know, geared to longer time frames. So the first one, you know, the pilot was a year. We now have just over two years. Again, we would like longer. Uh, we have over two years for this next wave of funding. So I think, um, yeah, good old-fashioned collaboration. Um, it's not, not new or, 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 you know, there's no novelty to it, but it, it does make for a better programme. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Thank you. That set us up brilliantly. Um, Steve, um, so you should all have a copy of Steve's excellent report underneath your bums. Um, so, Steve, I mean, what do you see as the role of modular housing in, in tackling these problems that we've been describing? Right. Well, thank you. Um, yes. So for those of you that don't know modular housing specifically, it's the it's the manufacture of 3D volumetric modules in a factory that are then shipped, usually by truck, to a site and just assembled on site. So the key thing this does is it basically takes a process that's done in a field, in the rain, in the dark, in winter, and puts it into a manufacturing environment, but just revolutionizes the efficiency of it. This is basically, house building is basically the last traditionally done industry that hasn't gone through an industrialization process in this country. So there's a big, big game there. I think in terms of the key things it delivers, the really basic thing is we have a lot of problems with our housing sector. We can't keep doing the same thing. It, it's not working. Um, it's delivering some results, but it's not delivering what we need. And there's a big cliff edge in terms of the labor market 
So the labour market in this country lost, the construction labour force lost 110,000 workers in the last 12 months. It's due to lose 25% of its workforce in the next 10 to 15 years. And that's before you start talking about the retrofit programme that you need in this country, which is obviously going to take a lot of that labour. So you cannot do retrofit without quite a substantial labour force in place to do it. It's very intensive. You're dealing with traditional models. So the huge benefit I think we have in terms of levelling up and in terms of that is being able to reduce that labour force demand and also bring new people into the labour market. So in the modular members that we have, 60 to 65% of the labour force are from a manufacturing background. So where you might see in a traditional building site, one in 100 people on site will be women. In a modular factory, that's about one in six. So you're just taking totally different groups into the sector. The other big thing is about control and about the, the efficiency that you get through pre-manufacture. You know, if you think about product types that you might have had in the 80s and 70s, you know, cars. You think about a car, you get <coughs> your old car, you used to have to know the inside outs of it, you have to know how every part of it works. Now you just get in the thing and it works. And that's about manufacturing, and that's what we're trying to bring to the housing process. So I think in terms of net zero, and particularly in terms of energy efficiency, one of the issues you know, I had when I worked uh, in the housing sector was the homes we owned didn't perform to the standards they were meant to. They don't do what they say on the tin. But in a, in a manufacturing process, you're getting that repeatability. You're getting that continuous improvement process. So when something doesn't work, it goes back to the drawing board and it's worked through and you're continually improving it. On a building site, you only ever learn how to work with that building site. It's very hard to take lessons away and apply them elsewhere. And I think it's really important to recognize that this isn't, this isn't the future. And that's what we're trying to show in the Greener Better Faster report. This isn't that sort of pipe dream that's happening in 10 to 15 years. This is happening now. So about £700 million of private equity investment has gone into modular in the last few years. That's created thousands of jobs across the country. And crucially, those jobs, and when we're talking about levelling up, decouple your really, really high-cost housing markets from the labour supply. You know, Rosie's factory, you're in Selby, you're providing all sorts of you know, houses in Bristol, houses in very, very high-demand housing markets. So that's a really, really important marker in that place. The other one, I think, is speed. Like this is modules 50% faster to deliver on site. You don't have the same delay process. So when you're talking about the importance of, I think particularly for the Conservative Party, of engaging with the younger generation, like a lot of renters are extremely dissatisfied with the political status quo because that's reflected in their rents and the low security of their homes, in their inability to get on the housing ladder. What rental property wants is speed. The faster you can bring it online, the better. Unlike for sale property, which often has you know, an absorption rate, there's only so much the market will bear, now you're seeing mortgage issues. Mm -hmm. And then I think on net zero, this, this is the answer for new build in this country. Every single home we've built in this country in the last 10 years, we're going to need to go back into. We're going to need to retrofit it. It's not, doing, it's not delivering the net zero demands, but more importantly, these homes are like US cars. Like our houses are designed to run on really cheap fuel and we don't have cheap fuel anymore and it's unlikely that it's coming back. Whereas modular housing can deliver, you know, 55% savings in terms of energy costs and we can do it now. That's the really tricky bit because actually what you've got is a ratchet rate for the traditional construction industry, which is necessary for them. It's harder for them to gear up to that, that you know, energy performance level A, that net zero process. We can do that right now but we are having to compete in planning terms and on cost with traditional build. So there's a bit of a leveling down agenda going on. Like we could do, we reckon modular housing could deliver 20,000 20, homes which are saving roughly 60 to 80% carbon emissions and are several thousand pounds a year cheaper to heat. 
but we need the incentive to actually do that because these do cost a few thousand pounds more and if we have to compete on price that's not going to happen so there is a question about how you use investment zones how you use planning exemption to really drive our housing to be the best they can possibly be and that's not about adding regulation that's actually just about moving regulation out of the way because modular the core elements of the property are standardized that you know these are hundreds of millions of pounds have gone into R&D. A third of all construction of buildings R&D spend in this country is in modular. They've literally taken houses, redesigned them, reconfigured them. So you can standardize this at a national level. You can still make sure that it works with the local planning system and what people want aesthetically, because that's just about how you skin the building. But the actual internal workings, that doesn't need to vary. So I think those are probably the key things about it. And I think there's another big point as we go towards, you know, we start to move into there is an election within around two years. It's going to be very hard to get the 300,000 homes that we know that was committed to in the manifesto. It's going to be very hard to deliver those numbers. But what government can do in that window is transform the housing market. You know, we can go from building some of the coldest, dampest, draftiest homes in, the, in Europe to building the highest quality, most high tech, most efficient homes that are also potentially exportable. Mm. Brilliant. I'm um, really interested that you mentioned the investment zones there. That's clearly something which Trust has been talking about and we might get into in, in, in questions because it might be an area where you could move more quickly. Can you just take us briefly uh, into the sort of, imagine we're going into a one of your, your modular homes, the fabric of that home. I mean, you're saying they're the most, the highest energy efficiency. So, th so these are EPC rating A. Yeah. Uh, and are they heated by heat pump typically or you've got sort of yeah, different, so different types of things? We're usually talking about heat pumps, solar panels, Rosie would be better qualified than me to talk about the products. Um, very, very high specs. And one of the things that's really interesting is I went to visit one of Rosie's sites. It's also not just the thermal efficiency, the sound efficiency. You know, you sit outside, there's a main road going past, shut the door, you can't hear anything. Like every, the home does exactly what it says on the tin and you, you cannot underestimate how big a deal that is, how much you can reduce the snagging rates. So they feel like regular homes. They're big, they're spacious. Um, you know, if anyone's seen the Grand Designs episode that was on recently with a modular home, they just look like regular homes. So I think one of our members was saying, you know, of the you know several thousand homes they put out, they've had five inquiries about it being a modular home from their residents. Two of those residents were building engineers. You know, it's indistinguishable. That's the key thing about it. The big difference is it doesn't break down. You don't get the defects, and, you, and everything performs as you'd hope. Mm. One of the other interesting points, just to make, in terms of like you were saying, Kate, on retrofit and on. But does all of this stuff is mapped, it's QR coded, it's like it's digitized, all of the component parts, all of the specifications. So when you go back in or when you need to check fire safety, you can do that. Loads of them issue just, you know, you can have like if you have the Google Sky app on your iPhone, you can have an app that just tells you where all of your utilities are, all of your, you know, electricity lines, plumbing, everything like that. So it's remarkably easy to work with. That's really, really interesting. Just before I bring Rosie in, you mentioned that point on innovation. And when you compare housing to other sectors, why it is that actually we haven't seen this sort of innovation in our in our housing sector? I mean, is the UK an outlier on this? Do you see homes that are using these more sort of modern, innovative techniques much more commonly in other countries and associated perhaps with the kind of weather conditions they've had or, or things like that? Yeah, there's somewhere definitely where fuel is expensive. There's had to be more innovation on that scope. So if you look at Scandinavia, you look at Germany even the Netherlands, they've, they've put a lot more into that. But Japan has a big modular culture. They've been building uh, that way for decades. What, the interesting thing that they do is that their homes aren't actually the same quality that ours are at, though. So they're very good on seismology. These things are earthquake-proof. But they're actually much less good on noise and on energy efficiency and, on this, and actually on the aesthetics. 
as well. So there's a, while there is a lot of this stuff being done, there's actually a real opportunity to be for the UK to be a global leader in this place. Mm. And we've seen that recently with one of our members, so Vision Modular Systems, who built Tower Blocks, they've just won you know, the sort of world's best modular building award out in Texas. And we're seeing UK companies start to compete in that space. Mm. And I think that's the really interesting opportunity is while it is done, it's done in quite different ways. And just briefly, you, you, just on how quickly you could scale up, you, you say in the report, I think you're one in 60 uh, yeah. new homes at the moment, um, but you think you could actually be, be much quicker. I mean, what, what do you see as the kind of um, the things that would depend on? Are, is, that, is that assumption about scale up built on, on some sort of conditions that you'd need to see in terms of support? It's, so um, we reckon by 2025, we will be doing 10,000 homes a year. That's what the pipeline pretty robustly calculated, but we think there is capacity in place to do 20,000. Um, that and bridging that capacity gap is really, really important because that's actually the growth that the Prime Minister is talking about. That's the that's the productivity gains, and that I think relies on a number of things. One of which is simply about creating a planning system that prioritises not just modular but also like net zero and levelling up. I think there's a role for government in terms of like levelling up as a national strategy. One of the conversations I have a lot with devolved authorities is around we want modular but we want the factory. And you need to, and there needs to actually be a national strategy, as there is for aerospace, as there is for wind, about where these factories are sited, how they're supported. And I think, lastly, um, one of the things we have seen is the Affordable Homes Programme, which is the government's uh, grant funding programme for affordable housing that housing associations make use of, has actually been very cleverly used to drive innovation. Uh, so they've, they've put a fixed percentage against that. That's really helped provide some security. But we could go further with that. We know actually what's happening with that program is a lot of providers are looking at sort of lower end MMC, so pod bathrooms, bits of kit. That's not adding the value that modular is adding. That's not creating the additional jobs. That's basically just allowing some people to sort of change their spots slightly in that space. So we'd like to see a much more fixed commitment around modular from that. Um, Rosie, really clear pitch from Steve there on the, the potential uh, of this sector. I mean, what, what, what do you see as the key barriers to all of that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think just sort of focusing on, on, on the positives, you know, I think we've we've come a long way as an industry in a, in a relatively short period of time. We've we've learned a lot from other industries like automotive and aerospace and taken a lot of the techniques in those industries and brought them to construction and and really tried to, to modernise an industry which, which hasn't really had that investment and hasn't really had productivity gains that lots of other industries have had over the last 20, 30, 40 years. So, you know, as, as, as Steve touched on, you know, we, we invest about, we, you know, the, the modular industry is responsible for a disproportionate amount of the investment in R&D in construction. And, you know, that will continue as we continue to drive efficiencies, drive productivity, drive improvement and bring, bring new techniques to the industry. I think in terms of, you know, we, we as Legal in General entered this industry um, to, to address the intergenerational unfairness in the marketplace, to you know, build homes because we see that as essential to growth in the UK. We see that as essential to the UK economy to, you know, to really help the various areas of the country level up. And, and so this is a fundamental, you know, core investment for Legal in General in order to, to help grow the, the broader economy. And in, you know, in terms of barriers, if I sort of flip side it and kind of build on some of the things Steve's just said, it's you know it's really about working with government, uh, working with local authorities, working with 
housing associations to 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 create programs which you know work in favor of modular you know there are great advantages that the modular industry brings to construction um steve touched on you know epca and energy energy efficiency you know at legal in general all of our homes are being built to epca um in the next few weeks we'll be um selling our some of our first net zero carbon homes and because of the way in which we have set about this uh, design and manufacturing process, you know, we are, we've sort of fundamentally deconstructed the home and, and kind of put it back together in a, in a better way. So we start with you know, better fabric performance. We start with better air tightness performance. Back to Steve's point about, you know, some of the draftiest homes in, 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 in Europe. And then we, you know, we add photovoltaic cells, which then power heat pumps. So we're delivering you know, net zero carbon homes because we're fundamentally capable of doing that by design. That's something that's quite significantly more difficult for um, traditional construction companies to do. And, and you know, basically what we're looking for is the government to continue to push the net zero agenda, continue to push the requirement for all homes to be at least EPCA as a minimum standard uh, through planning. Um, you know, clearly that has the benefits of um, reducing the amount of subsidies that the government will need to pay now in relation to energy bills and giving, as Steve sort of so eloquently talked about in terms of having visited our homes, you know, homes that are lighter, brighter, um, you know, more comfortable for people to live in because they are just built with fabric that is, is robust and gives a, a, a home which is um, energy efficient, warm in winter, cool in summer. So, you know, I think first first pieces continue to to push um, the sustainability agenda and EPCA as a minimum. I think, you know, in terms of other barriers, you know, we we are able to ramp up on the, the what what um, Steve talked about in terms of numbers of housing. The the main barrier that we we face at the moment is getting enough land and getting that land through planning. So I think you know, the encouragement we would give to, to, to government is to use more public land, um, sell more public land with a presumption in favour of modular or with some requirements to sell certain proportions of that land um, with a requirement to build as modular because we think that will help get the, you know, the wheels rolling on modular and, and give us the capability to, to actually build out the homes that we have the capacity to build in the factories. Um, you know, Steve talked about a sort of billion dollars worth of investment having gone into the industry over the last few years. That's allowed ourselves and a number of major players in the industry to to create the capacity to build that 10,000 homes by 2025. And we have, you know, we're poised ready to make more investment to, to take that further. But the, the real need at the moment is to get land and get that land through planning so that we can fill the capacity that we've already created. And then I think both Kate and Steve talked about the affordable homes program. You know, we see that as a real flywheel for success for the modular industry. Um, you know, for all the reasons we've just talked about in terms of, you know, the problems that exist with the, the, the current stock of housing, whether it's sort of fire eggs compliance or whether it's um, eating and ventilation requirements and the, you know, the robustness of homes. Um, as Steve said, you know, every home that's been built you know, well, every home that's been built virtually is going to require a level of retrofit. All modular homes are capable of delivering at APCA. And, you know, 
putting more housing out there that is going to have to be retrofitted really is quite, you know, <laughs> it doesn't make much sense right now. So I think using the affordable homes program to incentivize both both traditional and uh, modular house builders to deliver EPCA or higher standards you know, really has to be a you know a good way of, of, of promoting the industry and promoting standards across the industry, whether it's modular or any other uh, construction method, to get us to a point where we are building homes in this country that are fit for the future, building homes that people aspire to live in and building homes that don't give them the added problem of can I pay my mortgage and can I pay my my electricity bills or gas bills you know so so that's really where you know where we would like to see government policy kind of supercharged to, to to help the industry so around you know planning for net zero around making public land available and designated for modular build and around supercharging the affordable homes program to make it more um, aligned with the the delivery of modular homes Brilliant. Really interesting and good set of uh, sort of recommendations for us to discuss in, in, in questions. Just before I open it up to questions, I just wanted to ask you about the the public and sort of consumer response, I suppose. I was interested in you saying you're just sort of bringing this, some of your first homes um, on for sale. I mean, are people very excited to, to get into these homes? Because we often hear politicians sort of making out that energy efficiency isn't a particularly sexy area. You know, they're not, they don't think it matters to people. But actually what you're saying is, no, people do really care. Oh, it, it, it's right at the top of the agenda right now. You know, we um, we op we opened the sales suite in one of our developments um, a few weeks ago, and we had more than a hundred visitors over the weekend, and we, we we took reservations on every single home in one weekend. Um, you know, and I think the the first question was about energy efficiency. You know, we we led with the fact that everything's EPCA, um, and and that's you know a high level of concern for people, as well as the, the kind of the nice location and the high ceilings and the you know the, the sort of just general feel of the homes. But the energy efficiency is right at the top of people's lists. Mm. And one of the concerns I think people have with retrofit is if they they sort of pay for those um, upgrades, it might not necessarily be reflected in in the price when they sell a home on. But actually, what you're saying is. In these these new homes, you can see people are placing a real value and a premium on that performance, and particularly in a in a time like that. Yeah, and I and I think you know many buyers are actually very socially responsible now. You know, they're not just thinking of um, the value of their home, but they are thinking more about how it's constructed and how you know and then the planet, you know, and, and and the waste involved in having to retrofit later. You know, so where they can, they want to. A home that you know straight out of the box is is meeting those standards and is going to save them money, and is going to you know not require that wasteful wasteful retrofit in in a number of years time. And I think you know it it sort of fits with kind of the broader agenda of placemaking as well. You know, I think people have become a lot more connected with their homes as um, you know a place that they've got to spend a lot of time in, and they're interested in you know how well it runs. The, fact that everything works straight out of the box and, and where it fits in the local community and the, the sort of green space available to them as well. Brilliant. Okay, I'll open it up for questions. Uh, I'll take a round of three. If you can say who you are and where you're from, that'd be great. I'll take this one at the front. Uh, I'll take one there and I'll take the gentleman there. I'll come to you in the next round. Uh, thank you. I'm Mike Leonard from the Building Alliance. Um, obviously, we've preferred one version of the truth um, today. Um, I'd just like to sort of 
few things in perspective. And clearly, um, I think we've learned from this conference that planning is the, the primary barrier to development and not method of build. So we'll put that one to bed for a second. Um, if I could put to bed as well the principle of um, yeah, we're delivering houses through traditional build that aren't fit for purpose, which I think is, is the inference that you're saying. Um, not true. You know, and, uh, and actually, just around the corner here, we have future home standard houses built in Handsworth, built by traditional methods that are now being lived in and being monitored by universities to actually understand how they, they work. So, um, so you know, it's not a case of what material. So, you know, it's easy to say that you know, government should make a preference to one method of construction or another. Frankly, government shouldn't be doing any of those things. They should leave the market to decide how they do it, particularly when you consider that actually what we do in traditional build is create lots and lots of jobs with the highest level of unemployment in, uh, uh, in the country here in Birmingham. So, you know, we actually don't have full employment. It's quite everything said. We should get those young people into these jobs. And secondly, um, you know, in terms of the supply chain, you know, um, I'm sure you'll confirm that you know, your primary source of um, structure is steel. That's coming from China. Um, so, you know, that's not net zero. That's transport across the world. Is there a question? So, yeah, that's my question, really. So, will I confirm that that's the case? And also, can you send this design life as well? Because I think we should be building homes for the last 200 years. Brilliant. Okay. So, question on the role of modular alongside other different uh, types. We had a question over there. Hi, thanks. Gary Orr, I'm Chief Executive of Avery Housing Group. We build around 1,000 homes a year uh, across the south of England, and our aspiration is one in four of those is a minimum to be a modular home, net zero. Um, a question uh, really interested in understanding the extent to which I take it that the planning system has to be a key instrument to driving the market. But alongside that, I was really interested in your sense of institutional investment um, behind uh, the decisions and the extent to which uh, banks and, and uh, investors generally will use their ESG ambitions uh, to drive the market further. And I wonder also whether you're getting a sense of whether we're seeing shareholder reaction to the emergence of the market and whether that's an opportunity again to drive uh, further growth in this part of the industry. Brilliant. Thanks, Gary. And we have one more down the front here, if you just wait for the mic to come over to you. Well, my view is a bit more optimistic. Um, you just say who you are as well. I'm Sean Fallon from Fallons and Canvas Homes. Um, so we build on brownfield land with modular housing. Uh, it's more positive outreach. Uh, if, you th if you just look at the future that, that we have to build in, the environment, the way we're building, and the sort of look on traditional housing, the embodied carbon and the offsetting that you will have to achieve compared to reaching net zero, um, you, you simply can't get there. Uh, and I would challenge you to a debate, if you like. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, so the, question, the question really is, um, the future of modular, as year on year, the, the, it gets more trickier as COP26 turns into COP27. Um, how do we expand and grow this? And it's more of a question for Rosie. Where is the where is where's the growth scene? Are we are you looking to get on the investment zones and go in the same route as Rolls Royce with the SMR and the sort of general trend? And then uh, kudos to Kate for challenging the right to buy. 
that if somebody moves out of a, a right to buy, then you're challenging the fact that well, we need more stock. I think just a little bit of a narrative, if you've got a second on that. Great. Okay. Um, Kate, I'll start with you on those so you can pick up. So Mike's question on the on the different methods, uh, Gary on um, sort of planning system and institutional investment, and then Sean there, uh, sort of range of questions, but in particular, how do we expand the module, which I might pass on to. Yeah, sure. So I think firstly on, on net zero, um, this isn't specifically a module, it's just on, on decarbonisation and net zero. We cannot leave it to the market to deliver because the market is not delivering it. What we're seeing is in environmental shock after environmental shock and people really suffering as a result of it in terms of their, you know, how they're living in their homes, their fears about putting on the heating, um, you know, the choices between heating and eating. So the market is not going to deliver net zero. And I think it's just important to recognise that not all regulation is bad. Uh, if we want to be building all of our homes to EPCA, then we should regulate for it. We should have a level playing field, and then all parts of the market will actually just upskill and deliver, and we shouldn't be scared of that. And if you want to go further, innovate above it. No, that is fantastic. But I think there is some types of regulation that are really necessary to create markets and drive change. I think that the conversation around you know, traditional versus modular is that we absolutely need all of it. I know there's been a lot of talk at this conference around scrapping the 300,000 homes target. But if we look at our demography, if we look at our household formation, we're growing older. We're living longer. We're choosing to live alone more often. People want to have kids. People, you know, adults in their 20s and 30s do not want to be living at home with their parents. We should be supporting them to form their own households. So whether we have national targets or not, we do need around 300,000 homes each year. And of those, we need around 90,000 to be social. I think where we are with modular is it's, you know, like it's a really important innovation and part of that supply route. Is it going to fix it? No. Do we want to see it to grow? Yes. And how do we get it to grow then? Because I don't think we should be crowding out traditional build, but we need so much more of, of all of it. The, I think there's a really important, and this sort of links to, to Gary's question and around kind of the role of the banks and investors. If we want to increase the economies of scale, if we want to roll out, if we want to you know, do, do mass procurement so we get the confidence in the market, I think there is a really solid role for, for both government nationally and locally to understand what this is, what it isn't, and to create confidence. I think one of the things that we really struggle with in our sector is we have endless planning reform, which has been going on for a good decade, probably longer than a decade. And we have a continuous cycle of housing ministers. We're on our fourth this year. So it doesn't engender huge confidence. Actually, what we need is a clear direction of travel, a strategy that does include modular and traditional, a strategy that includes net zero, and then actually really good market engagement so that the institutional investors have confidence this isn't something that one minister will have in their brief for four months and then it will change, but that this is a central bank of government policy, um, you know, over over the coming over the coming decades. Um, and I think just last but not least, like on investment zones and opportunities, there, I just don't think we know yet what they're talking about. So I think you know, let's get some detail on that. You know, maybe that is a good opportunity, but we, I don't think we really know what it is or what it isn't. Um, on the right to buy, I think I think when it comes to net zero, this is a really big challenge. Now, this is not being anti-aspirational people owning their own homes. I think the challenges with the right to buy of council houses is of those homes that have gone, 40% of them are in the private rented sector. So when we are going to do our retrofit, it is really difficult when those properties, you know, you don't want to do a terrace and leave out one. So how do we have a more comprehensive approach 
to retrofit where the council is perhaps the placemaker that says we are doing the entire street but ha and, and then work out what are the mechanisms for getting those other 10 years in as part of it. Mm. But Sorry, that was answering all of them. No, no, that, that's brilliant. And uh, just before I come to Stephen Rosie, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the turnover of housing ministers. We actually produced a, a chart at IFG which shows all the housing ministers since 1990. I think there's been about 35, so they average less than a year in post. Unfortunately, it's sort of just about the churniest part of government, and it's often seen as a kind of stepping stone on the route to more important things. Um, but uh, just your point on the, the planning system, because I take... You know, it gets back to Gary's question, actually, on, you know, is another bout of planning reform really really what we need here? Uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who say mm, that still the planning system is holding us back. So how, how do you manage that tension? Because clearly we need to have some certainty. We need someone to sort of oversee the planning system moving in the right direction. And we can't keep going through these changes. But do you think there's some quite intractable problems in there? So I, so I think the key problem with the planning system is it having the skills and resources to do the job that it's set out to do. And I think from our members' perspective, their biggest challenge is getting a response, is making sure that there's good dialogue of being able to negotiate for it to be a fair negotiation. And particularly on this agenda, having officers and councillors that are empowered and upskilled to really be making the best long-term decisions for their, their communities, their local economies. Um, in, in terms of the net zero agenda, um, I think the government does need to up its game. So we have, you know, we have the Climate Change Act, we have our heat strategy, but is that cascading down to those decisions? And I think probably at a local level, I don't, I don't think it is. So I think um, we need clarity from our, our national politicians who we elect as our representative democracy. And then we need our local politicians who are elected locally to be taking interest, to, taking decisions in, you know, that match that national ambition. And that's why, you know, I know housing targets are, are very controversial, but there isn't actually anything controversial about understanding that your population is ageing and that we have younger people who want to live in a community or in our communities we have sea level rise or we're areas of water shortage and water stress. You know, that isn't controversial. So in some ways it's about having the big picture, having a strategy for the big picture, doing that in a democratic, accountable way and then cascading that to local governments, they own those own those decisions. And I think that that is the you know the best thing local government could do is have a plan in place that's based on really good evidence, where they've gone out and consulted with the community on it, and then make decisions in accordance with that. And I know it sounds really simple, but we just don't do it very well. And just very briefly, this idea of local consent, you know, you mentioned democratic. Um, you know, we've seen ideas like street votes gaining popularity. I mean, do you think those sorts of ideas about giving communities much more of a say could be transformative? Um, so I think that I think there are different ways of having participation in planning decisions. I think the role of a local councillor is a difficult one. Making decisions is really tough when you're having to compete with different pressures on your local area, pressures for school places, you know, people needing to get to work, not enough public transport, are there enough local jobs, you know, who is going to get the houses in your local area. But I think that is the job of a local politician, mm -hmm. is basically to have all of the evidence and then go and talk to people about what they want, what are they worried about, and then work out what is the best possible solution there. I think with planning, you can never keep everybody happy. That isn't what it's designed to do, but it's about thinking about the most sustainable options for the future of your place, getting a plan in place, and then making those decisions. I think, you know, street votes, um, regeneration votes, I, you know, I think, I think um, in doing that, it can be great, but you have got to be really, really honest about the trade-offs. You've mm. got to have good information, really good, consistent 
um, engagement with that community and be honest about the trade-offs. So actually, if you're opposing development, what, what does that mean? And, and, and I think the other thing that's challenging in things like street votes is you're not always engaging with the people who live in the next street or the one over that are in absolute desperate housing need and temporary accommodation. So I think you need to think about what your current population wants, but also the needs of your future population. And that, that's, that can be quite challenging. So there's not an easy answer here, but I do think the role of our elected representatives is absolutely fundamental at a local level for getting really good outcomes for, for people. And I, it's not an easy... I know if any of you are on a planning committee, it's a nightmare, <laughs> right? It's, it's so difficult. But, all, but, but, it's all, it's, but it's all kind of, it's all power to you. Yeah, but it's, I think being on the planning committee is the most important role in local government. You know, you are making decisions about the future of your area for generations to come. That is a great privilege. It's a great responsibility. And it's really tough. But I think, you know, empowering our, our councillors is with, with the evidence and, and having to make, you know, <laughs> had the Prime Minister talk about making unpopular decisions. You do on a planning committee regularly, but it's about taking that long, longer term. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's a really nuanced answer. Um, Steve, I expect you might want to come back on some of the points Mike made, but I think within that, there's a really interesting question about, you know, the role of modular alongside more traditional methods of housing, but also, if you would, pick up some of the points from, from Gary and Sean um, in there as well. Um, yes, uh, so I think um, no one's saying there's no role for traditional build. Like, traditional build is a really, really important part of the market. I was in traditional construction for most of my working life. I think what we're looking at is we've seen consistently a shortfall of delivery numbers, and as Kate's saying, demography is hard to argue with. We have a massive, massive labour. I didn't think I'd been that impressive uh, <laughs> in my point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're seeing a massive labour crisis in this country. So we need to do more. And I think what, and one of the things we're saying in this report is actually about using net zero and using levelling up as a way of driving more, of driving more and better and faster and greener. Like, and then that can be traditional and that can be modular. Some of the stuff it lends itself well to, some of the stuff it doesn't. But I think that's a really important point to recognise. There's, there's absolutely no way that we can ever deliver the homes this country needs without the traditional house building market. But this is going to be a really tough time for the traditional house building market as well. Um, so I think that would be the first point. On net zero, you know, we stack this up pretty robustly. You're delivering 40 to 45% less embodied carbon in tower blocks and up to 82% less embodied carbon in low-rise residential. That's, that's just the numbers on it. Chinese steel is still used, but thankfully, um, at Make UK Modular, one of our sister organisations, is UK Steel. So we're in conversations with them about how we can onshore that. And that's likely to be something that comes through in the next few years. Like, we're very, very aware that there is a, there's not just a carbon risk profile with Chinese steel, there's a supply risk profile, and as part of the general onshoring process of the UK manufacturing industry, that is something we're very cognizant of. Um, Gary, I think you're spot on about ESG. So uh, before I took this role, I was head of strategy at Clarion Group, and we negotiated one of the biggest ESG bonds in the country. That very much is driving that net zero agenda in, uh, and innovation in housing, because you're seeing quite different demands come through. And personally, I found that quite welcome during my time at Clarion because one of the difficulties is about external nudges into the housing association sector. A lot of that comes from government. So seeing a bit more of that from boards and from investors was really, really helpful. Um, I'm trying to remember what the third point was. I think I've there was a question on expanding and growing investment teams, but I might send that one on to Rosie. Um, so Rosie, I mean, we, Steve's covered some of that, but I think Gary, you know, his point on institutional investment, you might want to add on. Um, and then there was a point from Sean about 
how do you see the sector growing potentially whether you can sort of look at investment zones that sort of area as a potential growth sector so, i mean i mean i think the f- fundamental point is one about you know demand and supply and there is clear you know, the the market is clearly broken here you know there's been underinvestment in productivity and underinvestment in skills for for decades and that's one of the things that the modular industry is is trying to address you know we we're responsible for 30% of the investment in R&D in this sector. You know. So, you know, it, it really is a call to, to, to the whole industry to step up and deliver the number of homes and address that demand and supply imbalance and, and you know, ensure that, you know, young people can live in homes that are affordable. That's, that's fundamentally where we are. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, as Kate said, there's, there's, there's not great amount of detail about the investment zones as it stands but we are you know really supportive of, of any government measures which focus on investment focus on developing jobs and skills and improving productivity in the construction industry we're very much at the forefront of that and we would encourage anything that would help you know any of the actors in in the construction industry whether they be um modular builders or whether they be building product suppliers. You know, this this industry needs a bit of a kickstart um, and, and, and skills and, and um, method are fundamental to that. So anything that promotes investment in that space, we're, we're really supportive of. Great. We've got about six minutes left, so I'll take some more questions. I wanted to start at the back with the gentleman uh, with experience on the planning committees who is bursting to say something. Um, if you pass... <laughs> if you could keep it brief, I'll take another question from the back right there. I'm um, representative of Truro in Cornwall, a third of the county is an outstanding area of natural beauty, and we have all sorts of issues with environmentalism, heritage, um, you know, a lot of activity there. Um, I wanted to address more the net zero, if I could, some of the issues we have. I, I visited the geothermal plant last week, okay, so that's carbon neutral energy is virtually you know, very cheap to produce, but it was tied up for, for years um, by planning. You know, you have to do biodiversity projects, you know, you could do bat surveys, uh, local community can object. Um, so that was slowed down. It's very difficult to get that going. I'm on a 175 million pound development in Truro at the moment, and we, it took us, I think it was 40 years, they reckon, to get a, a derelict area through planning. They're able to use heat pumps there because we've got hot rocks in Cornwall. Even where it's not hot, we can still use the normal geology. Um, so it ought to be easy for us. You know, we've got plenty of wind. We're by the coast. We're not allowed to put windmills on land anymore. They have to go out to sea. Um, and we very often get planning committees just looking at very simple things in heritage areas, of which we've got a lot. So if someone's grade two listed building needs a new window, okay, they're not allowed to replace it with double glaze. They have to put wooden, wooden uh, single glazed windows in there, uh, which are expensive and in an area by the coast with quite a bit of sunshine. Of course, it needs painting a lot. In the house we have, if you want to paint the upper windows, you need scaffolding. Yeah. Fifteen hundred pounds before you've even started painting it. Okay. So what I'm saying here is that the issues that we have is planning. I don't have as much discretion as you would think on the planning committee. They're planning rules. There's Heritage England, which is stopping us doing all of the green stuff with windows. Uh, uh, there's environmentalism in such a beautiful county. And yes, I lived in Japan for three years, and they do have a lot of modular housing. It's a beautiful country, but the cities are really ugly. 
<laughs> Sorry. They look okay at night with the neon, but modular housing is never going to get approved in large parts of Cornwall. And, and the other question I have, if you'd address those, is... Just briefly. I lived in a 350-year-old house in Cornwall, okay, uh, as a child, so now it's 400 years old. How long do your modular buildings last? Okay, thank you for that. Um, we'll, we'll take a question from the lady in the middle here, and then I'll come to you at the back. Right. Well, I think... If you say who you are as well. Hi, I'm Rachel Day, and I'm representing Easy Life Homes Limited and um, Days Homes LLP. So some of our houses we've had for 30 years. Okay. They've got tenants in them, and while the aspiring to A grade EPCs is pretty good, well, jolly good. And I, I fully approve if I was building or, retro, or I'd got an empty house, I'd be working towards that. But even with the two probates that I bought and retrofitted that were 100 years old, I only managed to bring them up to Bs, which I'm pretty proud of anyway. I'm going over all my houses, but you can't throw tenants out while you do a lot of extensive work because they obviously have a right to quiet enjoyment of the house that they're living in. So you do what you can, and on apart from the two Bs, all the others are now Cs. I've read the white paper, and... Quite honestly, I think for those of us that have been in the business a long time, to bring it up to a C is as much as really should be being asked at the moment. Okay. You know? so. And I'm happy to work towards that, but to work to say yeah. everything should be A is a little over the top. Great. Okay, so question... I'm for new builds, Yeah. but a bit too much for established businesses. Brilliant. So question on the pace of change that we can we can expect, and then at the back there. Gentleman at the back. Uh, Robin Peith from the Building Societies Association. Um, a quick observation, if I could, and then a, a short question. Uh, the observation is... I've been attending fringes on modular homes since 2017, <laughs> when Alok Sharma was housing minister, and I, I too have lost count of housing then and now. Ever since that first fringe I went to, the traditional builders have been opposing modular housing. And that worries me, because it suggests to me that they're worried about the quality of their own product, rather than the competition. I may be wrong, but there seems to be, a, there is an observation of consistent opposition, which I don't understand, rather than maybe um, adapting and, 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 and adopting some of the innovations that come through on modular homes. The question I've got, which, is, which we talk, we're talking a lot today about um, housing associations and social housing, is I'd really like to hear an update, for, maybe from um, Rosie in particular, about uh, how modular homes are now being seen in the, um, in the unoccupied market and, 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 how, you know, and how, that, how that's been developing. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, I'll go the other way this time. So, Rosie, if you want to pick up on uh, any of those points, including the, the last one. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think 
we're, we're, you know, we're seeing good traction in the marketplace. Right now, we are uh, selling homes to private buyers on two of our sites. Um, a number of our sites are sold direct to housing associations, but on two of our sites, we're selling seven, one, one site was selling 70% as private sale, and the other site was selling 50% as private sale. And, and you know, they're selling very well because they're, you know, they're bright, they're modern, they're, they're the, you know, there's good attention to to place making um, and they're energy efficient, you know, and I think there's a, a new consumer out there who 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 has sustainability at, at, at their heart, you know. All of our homes uh, have NHBC approval and they're all designed to the same uh, code, building codes as traditional homes, so will last as long as traditional homes and in many ways we are designing and building homes to higher standards so they're future-proofed. So, at Legal in General, all of our homes are now um, being built to the future home standard. And we just, you know, it's that sort of manufacturing continuous improvement mindset that pushes us to, you know, deliver further, <laughs> higher standards um, because we can, because we're, you know, we're in, uh, you know, we're in a sort of manufacturing mindset and a continuous improvement mindset. And, you know, I think there's dozens of things that we do in a factory that traditional, manu traditional manufacturers, traditional builders could do right now. Um, that would help what they're doing, you know, and, and build their homes, you know, more efficiently, you know, with better productivity to a better quality standard. All of our uh, modules, sorry, not all, about 90-odd 90, 90 percent of our modules hit the end of the line with zero defects. You know, that's, that's some people laughed at us when we said we were going to do that, you know, and we sort of like, we're a bit sheepish ourselves about whether we could, but we're doing it now, you know, and I think that's absolutely possible. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, that you know, our site in in Bristol when we opened it, um, you know, we sold, we reserved reservations for all of our homes in one weekend. You know, so we're really pleased about that. Um, and you know, I think I've always said that you know, when people can actually walk down streets and see modular homes, and I, I take your Cornwall challenge. You know, when people can walk down streets and see modular homes and see great place making and see, you know, the finish that they get. You know, they will. They, the, the most common question we get. Is, is this a modular home? You know, I think the tide is changing, and I think I'd encourage you to go and just have a look at it, look at modular homes in your local area, and see what you know what the 21st century version of a modular home is like. You know, it's not not what you might imagine. Um, take a look in the brochure. There's some some nice pictures there, but the best thing to do is get the opportunity to walk down the street and go and see it. So I, I think it's a very positive future, um, and there's a lot for all of us to learn as we move forward together. Great, thanks, Rosie. Steve, um, final comments from you. I mean, you might want to pick up with your old hat on this point about the kind of speed with which all of this can be achieved. I'll rattle uh, through them, shall I? Yeah. Um, so, so, firstly, just the point on retrofit. Yes, <laughs> like it should be proportionate to the building. You can't retrofit all buildings to EPCA. That's very sensible. Um, quickly on uh, the trad versus modular. I think I've been attending the same fringe since 2017. <laughs> one, one thing I would say is while LNG are new into the market, you know, Lang O'Rourke are in this market. They do traditional construction. Our chairman's the former chief executive of Keatmo. He does traditional construction. Berkeley Group have spent 80 million quid on modular. Barrett are involved. They're building a second Cat 2 factory. So this isn't just a bunch of people coming in and doing modular. There's also a blend in this in traditional. Um, in terms of Cornwall, my uncle used to be the planning director for Truro. He's now 80. I suspect he worked on the same scheme you're talking about. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drop my line afterwards. Um, I, I think it's a, there's a good point on age and life cycle in buildings. Um, Japanese buildings, are both, the modules are both 20-year life cycles. Ours are built to 60 to 80. They're both the same build standards. They're NHBC accredited, all of that sort of stuff. They have the same life cycles, all new build in this country. Like, that's just how it's covered off. Also, the other point to make is I tore down 30-year-old buildings in Clarence because they were defective. Like, they were built badly. Like, and they were, and the embodied carbon was a nightmare. So, so that also happens in traditional. So I don't think, so I think it's just worth noting those points. Great. Thank you, Steve. Kate, wrap it up for us. So, uh, I, I, I can't not mention something about Cornwall. I'm from, I was born in Penzance. Uh, <laughs> I think um, Cornwall probably has the best renewable resource in England, uh, including geothermal. Um, I studied geology and then energy policy, and Cornwall also has the best rocks. But it does have this huge potential of, of heating in different ways. The difficulty is, is our planning system and our politics doesn't get it. So I think one of the things we need to do is really, really educate and upskill planning departments and councillors around the resources that they have available to them, um, the evidence base and making decisions on that. And government have a role there. And I think just very briefly on that, we have an opportunity for the government to update the national planning policy framework make a much more explicit link between sustainability and planning. Cornwall is, has you know, the most beautiful countryside, well, very biased, but when you've got AOMBs, it does not mean you should not be trying to achieve the climate change objectives of net zero. It means that you need to balance out public benefit with what's classified as harm. And I think there needs to be a rebalancing in the MPPF that actually when, when things are being turned down because of harm, Actually, they need to be thought about around um, fuel poverty, as well as, you know, you know, and emissions, as well as, you know, aesthetic and amenity value. There are some very, very high quality windows you can now put in that are double glazing, you know, that, that, that actually would not destroy the aesthetic of a place. Um, and actually, we it is important if we cherish that landscape to also take action in, in those properties on it. So I think we need to update the MPPF. That's completely within the government's gift to do. But it's not just about updating policy. It's making sure everyone understands the policy that we've got in place and making decisions in accordance with it. Brilliant. Well, that's all we've got time for. Um, thanks again to Make UK Modular for partnering on this event. They're a new trade body, so do look out for what they're doing in this space. Thank you very much to all of you for coming and for great questions, and thanks to the panel.